Greetings, friends. My name is Wes Nakamura from Blogworks Macro in Tokyo. It is Friday, May 12, 2023 at Asia Markets Close, and welcome to the Market Depth Podcast, bringing you global market commentary and analysis from the Asia-Pacific trading session so that you know what happened overnight today. We are going to take a look back at this week in global macro out of Asia, starting with the latest wave of data out of China, where CPI is basically at 0% year over year. Uh, China PPI plunges to a three-year low, and then we also have aggregate social financing and credit growth that's falling. Then we are going to take a trip over to my neck of the woods. Well, not really, but close enough. Niigata, Japan, where the G7 finance ministers and central bankers have gathered in my neck of the woods to discuss whether or not the United States will pay its bills. That's going on right now as we speak. Um, And then... We're just going to do a kind of quick markets follow-up from the earlier episodes of this week uh, as the Chinese financial stocks frenzy did indeed hit that brick wall and they've been falling ever since and they've been dragging the entire region down for the rest of the week. That is with the exception of Japan, whose equities markets continue to be very resilient into the end of the week. Um, And so this long Japan, short China divergence is really kicking into gear. Um, And so we know what's pushing the China markets down. What's uplifting the you know Japan throughout all this? It's single stocks earnings strength. And so I'm going to follow up with the post-Nissan and Honda earnings rally to end the week um, as the number two and number three Japanese automakers surprise estimates and full-year guidance and their production outlook because semiconductor chip shortage has now eased. And if you recall, this is exactly what JFE Holdings, the steel company, the steel maker, had explicitly said just two days prior in their earnings, essentially leaking the Nissan and Honda earnings calls for which the markets clearly didn't hear because the stocks rallied 5% each into the close today on heavy volume. Um, And then to just to end all of it going into the weekend, I am going to dive into the always very comical, very unique, but very serious and critically significant company known as SoftBank and their Vision Fund which posted yet another full-year record loss. Um, I've been thinking that, actually, you know, because SoftBank really does deserve its own separate episode. So that's what I'm going to do. And so I'm just going to give a quick gloss over today and just do SoftBank separately because it deserves its own separate thing. But either way, that's what's on the menu for today. A lot to cover. So despite everyone on the mother complaining about how fast I talk, this time it is for function. First, China CPI comes in at 0.1% year over year, okay, which is the slowest rate in two years. Um, And that very well may be yet another measure of weak domestic demand, and we're going to get into that in a second. But we also have PPI, Producer Price Index, which is the wholesalers. PPI plunged to minus 3.6% year over year, far worse than consensus expectations of a 3.2% drop. And now this is this now seventh consecutive month of declines in PPI. Um, and this, too, was the sharpest fall in about three years. Okay, so CPI, two-year lows. PPI, three-year lows. What's going on, China? I thought that we were reopening after scrapping, you know, zero COVID policy and all that, right? Okay, well, let's just take a you know quick look under the hood a little bit deeper. So a lot of this week inflation is due to falling commodity prices and energy prices. Because if we look at China's core CPI, which is X fresh food and energy, that's up 0.7%. 
But that is still flat on a month-over-month basis. So trend-wise, it's not like um, it's making progress either. So the energy component, which is coming off of a very high base rate from the crude oil surge in the first half of 2022, that's hitting CPI down for sure. Um, and that will likely continue for the next few readings, simply you know off of like base effects alone. Now, services inflation, as well as items like clothing, those aren't actually falling. Um, and so there you see the China reopened driven price support. But the the lower energy, the fresh food prices coming off of like the high base effects, that's basically negated any of the reopened services spending. Okay? Or another way to say it would be that the reopened spending drive is not enough it's too te- it's too tepid it isn't enough to overcome the base effects of the commodity prices falling okay so cpi and ppi in china are both falling how much of it though is actually the weak demand story versus the base effects driver right so what else can we glean from other data well we also have uh china credit data namely total social financing okay in other words aggregate financing which is just another broad measure of credit um, and we also have new loans data. And so aggregate financing came in at uh, 1.22 trillion yuan for uh, April, which is a pretty sizable miss from the estimates of 2 trillion yuan. Um, and a very big drop from the previous 5.3 trillion yuan just a month prior. Um, okay, so there's that, right? And then let's look at new loans. New loans offered by financial institutions was 718 billion yuan, which is basically half of where estimate uh, consensus estimates were. Consensus estimates were at 1.4 trillion yuan, and the actual was 718 billion. So if you tie in this weaker-than-expected credit growth, credit demand, back to you know the weaker-than-expected CPI and PPI, it, all this in, co- in aggregate and combination, it seems to point to indeed a weaker demand picture that's driving inflation, rather than just having just like uh, you know blaming high base effects you know measurements, right? The reopened gusto is you know is is coming in weaker than consensus Western economists had been expecting and had been looking for initially. Okay. Now, the question is, in the face of a downtrend in both CPI and PPI and weak domestic demand and economic uncertainty, um, you know, lower credit growth, all that kind of stuff, right? In the face of all that, what will the PBOC do or not do? You know, will they provide additional stimulus to support a potentially fragile um, but recovering consumer? It seems to be like there's a very big split right down the middle um, in terms of at least Wall Street economists over that very question, right? You have – it really is like 50-50. You have like some calling for the like a need for further policy support um, while others are saying that you know rates are already at you know historic lows and this growth picture – um, of 5%, that target will be met, if not will be beaten handily. And so therefore policy easing won't be coming for some time. And then you have every other argument kind of in between, like all over the place, right? Um, I, I personally, I, I'm not an economist, then I don't know, all right? Uh, however, I will say, if you recall from earlier this week, not market depth, when I talked about China's total debt to GDP uh, ratio hitting new record highs, if you recall that, 
That was due to a surge in credit growth for the January to March quarter of this year. Okay. So there was already a a surge in in credit growth during that time period. So given that very recent backdrop and context, PBOC probably might not be in like an immediate rush to fill the punch bowl. Um, What the hell do I know though? Either way, Further confusion and contradictory data, right, as to the broader China story, the reopen story. But as I've been saying all along, you really do have to kind of be able to separate, compartmentalize everything, right? There is no such thing as a monolith in the world's most populous country. The wealthy are reopen consuming. Um, And what are they consuming? What the wealthy people consume? Luxury goods, services, all that kind of stuff, right? The non-wealthy are not. So it is very possible to have a simultaneous reopen activity happening and not happening in a population of over a billion. The younger generations are are not doing it either, right? Nor are they rushing back into reflating a housing and property bubble. They're actually currently being very conservative with their savings. Um, But that said, any and all this can turn on a dime in any direction for any reason. So, therefore, we need to be relentlessly vigilant because if the developed world enters a recession, um, then China's economic activity will have to bail out the rest of the world. And if they instead join in with being like an economic drag, then that's the difference between a so-called like mild recession and a far more prolonged self-perpetuating, self-feeding one. Things like commodity price action and stuff like that. Um, I mean, you're seeing why you have uh, crude oil that has yet to have its like, you know, 100 handle and above surge in this like supposed China reopen uh, outlook that so many people had. I mean, how long can a reopen window last for, right? So that's another way of almost saying that like it doesn't make sense to buy crude oil call options like leaps. Or like uh, with very far out expiries, because if it's going to happen, it's going to have it's going to have to happen sooner than later. If that's your thesis, okay. G seven finance ministers and central bankers gather in Niigata, Japan, um, and they're doing this currently, and they're doing this ahead of the main event, which is G seven Hiroshima. That's next week. So currently, Christine Lagarde is like walking around here somewhere. Actually, Niigata is not at all close to Tokyo. Um, it's like a ski town. I didn't even know that it existed in non-winter months. Um, but it's not just Christine Lagarde, okay? By which I mean, so the G7 is the US, Japan, UK, Canada, uh, Germany, France, Italy, right? Yeah. Plus the European Union. But this time, um, in like apparently in a kind of rare move, G7 has invited some non-members such as Brazil, India, Indonesia, South Korea, Singapore, as well as the chair of the African Union. So invites have been brought it out to join part of the, you know, the, the G7 meeting in Japan, supposedly to discuss matters including, like global matters, like uh, debt issues um, affecting the like lower and middle income nations. That's what like kind of the official stated reason is. And then the unspoken but still kind of blatantly obvious other reason being to kind of coalesce against China economically. Um, But the official agenda 
for you know the the, the G seven finance ministers and central bankers for twenty twenty three Japan. First on the list is inflation, ironically being held in the one country that's lacking uh, or lagging inflation, um, and either way is uh, pff, just full on pro inflationary central bank policy. So kind of <laughs> kind of awkward for what like. Uh, Japan officials to be standing around when everyone else is having that conversation. So that's that's like issue number one. Issue number two is Russia sanctions and you know how to kind of enforce it, enforce sanctions and and to um, push back against those who evade. Um, and then after that is global financial stability amidst, amidst like banking crises and so on and so forth. And then after that is China economically so that's what's supposed to be going on that's what they're supposed to be working on discussing you know like that's what they're that's what they're here for now what's actually going on everyone is encircling janet yellen asking if congress is going to default on its obligations or if this is just another stupid washington high wire act and either way if they can all please just get live updates uh if this is theater or if we're really going to do this, please just let them know as soon as you know. Now, here's some color from, like, on the ground, okay? As in, as in like, from Japan. I'm not, like I said, I'm not in Niigata, as I mentioned. It's not close by. But just kind of me- from a media sense, right, from, like, the host country media sense coverage-wise, you know what, like, you, what the prevailing G7 headline has been in, like, domestic g- general Japanese media? It's nothing about like what these people are actually discussing or doing or working on or press conferencing or, or anything like that. But rather, it's that U.S. President Biden might be a no-show to G7 Hiroshima next week because he may have to potentially be in D.C. to hammer out a debt ceiling deal. Now, that headline alone is just very bad for America, uh, let alone if Joe Biden actually didn't attend G7 with the rest of the world leaders because he's home talking to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy about paying bills that they owe on money that they already spent and messing with the so-called risk-free credit of the U.S. Treasury, like the, the latest like headline development on the matter, from what I can see, right, is that Biden and McCarthy postponed their debt ceiling meeting set for today, Friday to next week okay so at the time of this recording that's this is what this is where we are and that's supposed to be a sign of progress towards a deal being made okay well history shows that these modern debt ceiling showdowns don't get resolved until the 13th hour so it most certainly will continue into and past next week unresolved like that much i can be fairly confident of saying so Debt ceiling issue will overhang until the last minute, and then maybe even beyond that, okay? And so, therefore, next week it's not going to be solved if Joe Biden stays or if he doesn't stay. So it's now just a matter of whether or not President Biden actually cancels his G7 and his quad appearances in Asia, and if he's a physical no-show, and if he is a physical no-show, in my view, that would only be bad for everyone. G7 and G20 gatherings themselves 
they don't really matter so much in terms of like geopolitical developments and potential shocks or whatever it is. Like the real action um, is like the impromptu bilateral or otherwise like talks on the sidelines that just kind of happen off camera spontaneously that ha- shape the global picture, have more influence on that, right? So if the United States president is a no-show Zoom call-in, in a critical region of the world where every other major leader has physically congregated is has to zoom call in from DC be, all because American politicians can't seem to refrain from being clowns in a lunchroom food fighting just to pay its bills then it's not just a debt ceiling matter anymore it's not just a full faith and credit of the United States government anymore because even if and when the debt ceiling gets lifted, the president of the United States has ceded away, you know, some leadership or credibility um, at a time where there's really not such, it's not such a given anymore, right? And I'm not talking about specifically just Joe Biden. I mean the presidency of the United States, regardless of the occupant. Um, And then... After G7 Hiroshima, at the end of May, in Sydney, Australia, there's a gathering of what's known as the Quad, right? So it's leaders of Australia, India, Japan, United States. Those four are set to hold the summit. It's called the Quad. And the discussions of like how to deal with China's increasing military and economic influence teamed up, right? Australia, United States, Japan, India. So, Quad. Minus one. Like, I mean, how seriously would anybody take American leadership if the president can't leave home because Congress might default on U.S. debt? And by the way, he should be home trying to hammer out a deal and avoid a catastrophe rather than attending G, you know, G, the G6. And the G6 would prefer that as well. What I'm saying is that that is just a very pathetic state of affairs for the United States to shoot itself in the foot already in um and in in more ways than one in far more than just like economically like it reverberates far beyond that right um and so that's why this like general japanese media broadcast media at least from what i can see like the story thus far that joe biden may may be a no-show that in itself already weakens the united states standing that such a thing like missing the G7 for what should be a routine thing for the U.S. to not default could even be conceivable. Okay, so that's all for the G7. I'll keep you guys posted. If I see anything else anecdotal or otherwise that might be missed, um, as long as I'm here, why not, right? Or as long as they're here, why not? Oh, by the way, I keep getting asked this question for some reason, like a lot recently. I don't know why, um, but... For those of you who want my view as to what I think would happen to the markets, should there actually be a United States like default triggered, like an actual one, my my answer is first of all, um, whatever I say is under the pretense that I have no effing idea what the cascade of market dominoes would be. Nobody does, and so this is going to be a very hypothetical, nonsense response of zero value. Okay. But if, that, if, if that's what you want to hear, okay, it's my view that if the United States doesn't pay its obligations in full and on time and actually has a, like a credit event like default, right, then markets-wise, 
I think what happens is that dollar yen, USD, JPY, and US yields would absolutely plunge together in tandem. Because in a US default financial meteor striking scenario, the, the relative safest haven inflows amidst global cross-asset mayhem would ironically find themselves diving into U.S. treasuries. Those are still the relative safe havens in the given sort of Armageddon scenario of, you know, markets, right, cross-asset. So despite being the very instrument that just defaulted, that's what I think that's what would happen. And so that's why U.S. yields, especially the long, at the long end, would collapse. And then currency-wise... You know, as USD is a safe haven, you know, from everything, the perceived safe haven from USD in a risk-off scenario is the yen and gold and maybe CHF. And so US defaults, then US Treasury yields, and the U and dollar-yen gets smashed in my view. But who the hell knows? All right, finally, to wrap things up for markets this week, okay, just wanted to follow up with the commentaries making, uh, you know, earlier in the week to see how they panned out, right? Um, so first on the broad-based indices, so the last episode of Market Depth for which the thumbnail of the episode for YouTube, like the image literally said something along the lines of like, China crashes as Japan rallies. It's as straightforward as you can get for my you know view at the time um basically what you know what i was noting was that i think that based on kind of the, the market trading behavior in these chinese stocks that were going limit up on the chinese like bank stocks on, starting on monday um and the kind of concentrated one directional buying that were happening in specific incremental times you know of, of the trading day right market on open pm open the pm close um, and this is all following the prior day's limit up halt on certain Chinese financial shares and state-owned enterprises. Like what's, what I was saying was that so we're going to get a sharp pullback when this nonsense momentum rally in state-owned bank stocks suddenly reverses. And that reversal just occurred 30 minutes into the PM trading session you know, earlier that day. And it's broad-based China equity markets downside in the immediate term from here forward. That's what I said uh, in the last episode. I also then, in a completely separate matter, said that the Japan markets are currently holding up um, at a level of resilience that's extremely rare that I don't really see. There's actual inflows. And uh, not only are the Topics Index and the Nikkei Index the best-performing major GM indices year-to-date, hitting new 52-week highs every day or every other day on pure foreign capital inflows, but, you know, this, like, long Japan and short China setup is, is, is going to be starting in the immediate, is what I said, okay? So, what happened in the immediate, just to follow up? So, the China CSI 300 Index from that moment was consecutively down over 1% per trading day since then and down 3.6% from that Monday limit up meme day to, you know, close today. And it wasn't just China. It was Hong Kong that was also dragged down 3.3% in just like the three trading days since to the end of the week, right? Taiwan was down 2%. Korea was down 1.5%. 
Uh, Australia was, uh, I think it might have ended the week slightly down, more or less flat to end of the week, right? Um, so it was regional. Japan, over that same exact period, the Nikkei is positive like 1.6%. Look, for those of you who don't know me or haven't followed me for very long, um, I just want to let you know, I am never, ever, ever bullish on the Nikkei or the Topics Index or the, like the Japan Equity Index Indices um, as a relative pair, okay? As in, when I say I'm never bullish, it's not. I'm not saying that I don't think that they'll ever go up. Obviously, they will go up and go down too. When I say relative pair, I mean that if I had to do a long Japan and I had to short another major global index i would never do that because even if i think the nikkei will be going directionally higher it will underperform whatever that short pair is regardless of what it is spx the dax whatever it is right that's what i mean by um i'm never bullish on the nikkei or the topics index as like a relative pair i can count maybe like five times that i was definitively long japan um you know in, in like a, that kind of relative pair trade setup over the past several years, maybe five times, okay? Now, I'm not saying that I have that level of conviction currently, but it is getting close to that. It's all about that Nikkei at that 30K ceiling level of resistance that's appro that it's approaching. If we blast through that, like, I mean, I'll, I'm long, okay? Um, well, or I'd, I'd add to my long. <laughs> Okay, but look, don't listen to me in my my trading nonsense or whatever, right? My point here is just to simply and clearly, you know, state for the record for any new followers of mine, um, and just to let everyone know that I am never bullish the Nikkei index, just historically, um, for many good reasons, right? And if I ever were, I would hope that you would take it as pure objectivity behind me being bullish and absolutely nothing to do with my geographic location or something like that, right? I would hope that I've instilled enough of an impression that like geographic bias or any irrelevant bias is absolutely not part of my market interactions. So um, if you're just familiarizing yourself with me, and then I do happen to really step up being bullish on Japan equities in the next, in like the near term. Like you've simply caught me at a rare kind of coincidental moment. Okay, just want to let you know that. But right now, there are serious foreign inflows going um, into Japan, and look, they can just as quickly and easily be outflows. But a foreign inflow-led breakthrough through that 30k um, resistance on the Nikkei index would probably be the most like bullish flow driver for that index and for any really ma major um, DM index that I've seen in in years. Um, okay, now let's just follow up with the single stocks from earlier this week, okay? So remember JFE Holdings? This is the Japan steelmaker who reported, um, you know, very strong guidance and had a 15% intraday rally after their earnings on, what was it, Tuesday, right? And because they guided for huge steel production increases for this fiscal year, because, you know, that because they're getting demand from the automotive sector, which they supply to. And why is the automotive sector in need of JFE metals? Because if you can recall, according to JFE's earnings statement on Tuesday, the automaker's semiconductor chip shortage has begun to normalize 
such that they can return to auto production like capacity, maybe not full capacity, um, or maybe so, but either way, more than they were being limited by due to this lack of uh, chip supply. In in charts what I, that I was looking at was that Japan steelmaker JFE holding shares and the Sox Philly Semiconductor Index were pretty well correlated directionally. Steelmaker in Japan and the U.S. Semiconductor Index directionally correlated. Okay, if you haven't seen this episode, by the way, it's the last one. So go take a look at it, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, consistently, like directionally correlated for like a decade, right? And then the second point was that as of late, JFE Steel um, shares, as well as the Topics Auto Sector Index, um, which is basically like you know Toyota, Honda, Nissan, that, that those move like in percent for percent lockstep, and the car companies. That would mean that the fundamentals um, of the company were actually kind of being reflected in markets, right? Because if the autos are doing well and they're making cars, then JFE Steel does well providing material to make cars. It's very straightforward and vice versa. So that's why I pointed out to keep eyes on Nissan and Honda earnings after market yesterday um, on Thursday in case that what JFE management was already saying in their earnings just two days prior that their automotive customers are back with orders to make cars due to the easing of semiconductor chip supply situation which led to jfe shares rallying 15 percent intraday you know that it's very highly possible if not likely that nissan and honda may very well echo the same exact thing in their earnings two days later okay well what happened at the earnings? Let's take a look. Nissan Q422 earnings for this quarter that just ended in March, okay? We have a net profit that came in seven times higher year over year. 7x higher. Last year, net profit, 14 billion yen. This year, 100 billion yen. What's more, however, okay, Nissan's guidance for the fiscal year through March 2024 is for sales of about 12.4 trillion yen, which if they hit that sales figure, that would be a record for Nissan. So Nissan is basically guiding for record sales. Why did Nissan kill it this last quarter? Out of nowhere, right? 7x their profits so year over year. And more importantly, why are they extremely optimistic on their... Uh, sales guidance, uh, you know, to a record level. Well, n according to Nissan president and CEO, Makoto Uchida, at the Thursday uh, earnings event, yesterday's earnings event, quote, it's a tough environment, but production volume will grow from our new models and the recovery in the semiconductor supply chain. Honda. Quote, we expect global sales to increase 18% to 4.35 million vehicles for a year ending March 2024, says Honda Executive Vice President Shinji Aoyama, uh, also on Thursday, predicting the semiconductor supply to recover towards the second half. Operating profit was projected to grow 90% to a record 1 trillion yen. A rebound in production is anticipated, um, improving the utilization rate of Honda's plants. 
It's not like JFE is just making shit up out of nowhere. They literally gave a two-day advanced heads up into Nissan and Honda's earnings. But markets hadn't made that connection with the Nissan, you know, flat on the day um, right before they reported, reported their earnings after market. So what I was thinking was like, look, if Nissan shares surge tomorrow at Japan Cash Open or even overnight on US ADRs, okay, though obviously the Japan listed shares are really what matters. But if if that happens, that says a lot about a lot, okay? But mainly what it says is that markets are absolutely not efficient and fully priced in. They just aren't, okay? Which is another way of saying institutional investors, the pros, they very much miss shit that's out there in the open. And we, the individual investors, aren't always and permanently without edge just because they exist out there. Okay? So it's a broader message that's bigger than JFE Steel and or, or Nissan or Honda's earnings plays or anything like that. It's just a very simple message of do not be intimidated by institutional investors thinking that they are pros. Okay? And that you have to put your capital up against people who do this for a living with resources, with time, with this is their job and they have, you know, the, the experience and they have the capital and they have the access to this and that or whatever. And, you know, this is a zero sum game and you're going to get destroyed. I guess it's totally justified, like, why you would be intimidated. Those fears, which I used to harbor myself, they simply aren't true. They aren't, right? Like... The reason I'm talking about this JFE, Nissan, and Honda trade, it's not because I'm like what, like patting myself on the back for, for like any purpose like that. No, I like I have to gr grasp this opportunity to show you in real time on the record that these things are not priced in. JFE Holdings Management said two days before Honda and Nissan earnings what Honda and Nissan earnings are going to be saying. Markets didn't react to it. They reacted today to it. They both those stocks closed up five percent on massive volume. They pushed the Japan index up. So I have to seize that moment to prove it to you that markets are not efficient. That the institutions missed that completely. Obviously, that's why they ran in today. Um, and that this is a common occurrence. And so I hope that that will like instill some confidence or maybe even rejuvenate like interest and enthusiasm um, for markets um, and to try to figure things out. And that, yeah, you do have a shot. Yeah, you can have an edge yourself. Um, and uh, like, of course, all that's possible. That's why I'm showing it right now. Seize the moment to do that. And it's rare that I get the shit right, too. So. Anyway, thank you for uh, following and listening to Mark Depth. Uh, on behalf of BlockWorks Macro, my name is Wes Nakamura. Have a wonderful weekend. Keep an eye out for this SoftBank thing, um, and we'll see you soon. Thanks.